Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to turn with your copies of God's Word with me, book of Exodus chapter 20. And as we prepare our hearts to hear God's Word this morning, I was reminded of what it says in 2 Corinthians 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That the treasure that you have the treasure of the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of the good news of Jesus, treasure that we have in us, fail or frail jars of clay, easily broken. easily crushed, easily driven to despair, easily destroyed. Yet in our bodies of death, there's life. We just sang one with himself, I cannot die. Who says that? (laughs) Who says, I cannot die? Who has the audacity to make such a claim? Yet, we make that claim in Christ. What hope, what joy, what life we have in our Savior. And we even hear that in the book of Exodus. So would you stand with me as we read Exodus 20, verses 22 through 26 this morning. And yes, Lord willing, This will be the last sermon in Exodus 20 for some time. 
Hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with you, be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not, may, uh, let me say that again, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What are the priorities in your life? What are those things that you have to attend to and that you will drop whatever else you might be doing to take care of those things? They have a priority in your life at any given time. We have priorities in marriage to our husband or to our wife, the priorities of our children. Priorities of our jobs or careers, priorities that revolve around our stuff, priorities of our health and well-being. Seems like a long list of priorities if we start to think about it. <laughs> Maybe sometimes you have to even prioritize the priorities in your life. Where does the worship of God fall in your list of priorities? Or is it even a priority at all? Can you take or leave the worship of God? Do you only want to worship God when it's convenient for you? Is there ever that tug or pull in your heart or upon your mind where you would say, I need to worship God. I have to worship God. This is what I must do, and I will drop everything else in order to worship God. How necessary is the worship of God in your life? And I'm talking about worship being broader than just singing. Sometimes that's a shorthand we use 
we might say, how did you like worship today? And by that we meant, do you like the songs that we sang today? When I talk about worship, I'm talking more than just singing. Singing is a part of that. But worship is much, much more than just singing. In one sense, we think of all of life as worship. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In everything, we are to be glorifying God. It is the chief end of man. It's our purpose. It's what we were made for, what we were created for. We were made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Is that what you would say your life is all about? That's what my life is all about. Can you say that? Glorify God and enjoy Him. And this is the highest calling upon everyone's life. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from this morning. This is the calling, the chief end of every single person. It doesn't matter what station you are in in life. Young, old, married, single, children, no children, rich, poor, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. You were made, you were designed, you were fashioned by the Creator's hands to worship God. And to worship Him with your whole being, with everything that you are. What is the motivation for our worship of God? It must be love. Why do you want to worship God? Because you love Him. But our love is not based Upon our initiation of love, our love is based upon God's initiation of love towards us. God has loved us first through his son, Jesus Christ. And so now we want to love God in return. We want to reciprocate love to him. Our love will never match his love. We'll never be able to be compared to his love. It will never be as great as his love. It will never be as hot and as passionate as his love. But we want to love him in return in some way. And so we want to worship him. We want to say with those people in Revelation Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. When you come to see and understand that our God and our Savior is worthy, nothing should hold you back from declaring his worth in this dark and dying and sinful world.
That is what worship is. Worship is ascribing worth to someone or something. That's where we get that word, worship. It's worthship. What is worthy? Who is worthy? Who's worthy of adoration? Who's worthy of glory? Who is worthy of our everything? God alone is worthy. We have to realize that the problem is not that we don't worship. In one aspect, everyone worships. Everyone is a worshiper of something or someone. If we're designed to worship, we're going to find a way to worship. Whether you recognize it or not, you will worship. The question is, are you worshiping the Lord? Worshiping Him in spirit and in truth is the only true worship. It's the only worship that satisfies. It's the only worship worth participating in. Is worship a priority in your life? Maybe even more direct is the worship of God priority in your life? Is private worship a priority? Is family worship a priority? Is congregational worship a priority? And it is absolutely fundamental to the Christian life. It was fundamental to the Israelites here at Mount Sinai. These verses begin what is called the Book of the Covenant. So Exodus 20, verse 22, begins what we would call this book of the covenant that God is giving to his people. While he's just given the ten words on Mount Sinai, now he begins to get even more specific, more specific about who he is, about the life that the Israelites are to live before him. This is where the book of the covenant begins. It begins with a call to worship. Why does it begin with a call to worship? Because that is the basis of our lives for those who would follow Jesus Christ. With all of the rules and judgments that might follow in the book of the covenant, these will all be rooted and grounded and must be rooted and grounded in the worship of the Lord. You can't do all of these things. You can't live this life apart from worship of the Lord. If you're going to live the way that God wants you to live, it begins here in these four verses with who you worship, how you worship, and the priority of worship that is to be in our lives. And that's why we begin our services with a call to worship, because that's what God does here. He begins with a call to worship. Come and worship. Come and worship God. It's a pattern that the Lord has laid down for us in His Word. And so then our call to worship is not man's idea, it's God's idea. As we think about this book of the covenant, as we begin this Sunday thinking about this book of the covenant, it reminds us of what was said in Exodus 19.6. If you just flip back there for one moment. Here's what. The Lord tells the people, 
and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does it look like to be a kingdom of priests? What does it look like to be a holy nation? That's why God gives them this book of the covenant. You want to know what it looks like to be a kingdom of priests? You want to know what a holy nation really looks like? God is spelling it out in these verses. The book of the covenant is meant to transform people into a holy nation. It's meant to bring people together to live under the authority of God. And while this is written to the Israelites thousands and thousands of years ago, do we not say, does not the Lord want us? Has not he called us to be his kingdom of priests, to be his holy nation, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? Doesn't he desire still to transform us into a people who live underneath his authority? And Father, forgive us for those times when we fail to live underneath your authority the way that we should. Because if we're honest, we don't always live underneath that authority the way that God wants. We've all failed. We've all, at a time, wanted to be our own authority. So the Israelites' holiness begins with who and how they worship. They are worshiping the holy God and they are to uphold this holiness in the pagan world that they are living in. Isn't there a connection with us? God wants us to live as a holy nation and uphold his holiness in this pagan world that we live in. You do not have to go very many steps outside of the doors of this building to encounter the absolute paganness and sinfulness of this world. How are we then going to prioritize worship the way that God wants? Three ways this morning. You can find this in your bulletin if it's helpful. An outline there is provided. How are we going to know if we prioritize worship the way that God wants? Number one, the worship of God is determined by His Word. The worship of God is determined by by his word. Words have a prominent place in our life. We say things like, when I received word, and oftentimes there is a response to that. I received word. I received bad news this week. I received good news this week. And it has an effect upon our lives. We have a response. The Lord had just spoken to the people of Israel out of the fire on Mount Sinai. They had received his word with terror. In fact, Last week we saw they said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us anymore lest we die. If God speaks, if God says another word, we're going to die. Moses 
as the prophet of the Lord draws near to the very presence of God and God spoke to him. And this is where we enter these verses. And the Lord said to Moses, let's not too quickly pass over that small phrase. The Lord said to Moses. It's not an insignificant phrase. It's not just meant to help us along in this event. Stop and look at that for a moment. Let your eyes go over those few words. What grace. The Lord spoke to Moses. What grace that the Lord was not silent. What grace that the Lord would speak and communicate with his prophet so the people could receive the word of the Lord. What grace is God's word to us. We don't deserve the Lord to speak to us. We don't deserve to hear God's word. We cannot demand for God to speak to us. He speaks out of his loving and compassionate and gracious person. And what does he say to Moses? Moses, go to the Israelites and say exactly what I tell you. And say it to all of them. Everyone needs to hear these words. Do not leave anyone out. These are important and necessary words. Think about it with me for a moment. God says, they have seen. You see that there. Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen or you have perceived for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. What fascinating words. What did they see? They saw that the Lord talked with them. It's not what we would say, is it? What would we say? We would say, we heard God talk to us. But that's not what God says. He says, you saw that I have talked with you. It's a bigger and it's a broader picture than just merely a sensory of the ears, of hearing with your ears. They had experienced something else, something so great, something so spectacular, something so monumentous that they also saw it. It was more than just their ears. They were encountering a theophany, something that they had seen. And it was a whole event that was meant to captivate them and to arrest them and to demonstrate the greatness and the grandeur and the awesomeness and the splendor and the gloriousness of God. It reminds me of 1 Samuel 3.21. If you have your Bibles, turn there for one moment. 1 Samuel 3.21. This is truly spectacular. 1 Samuel 3.21. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. So what happened? The Lord appeared. 
Why? How? Because for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh. How? By the word of the Lord. The Lord appeared. How did the Lord appear? By his word. That's how God showed up to Samuel. That's how the Lord showed up to the Israelites. They saw the word of the Lord. They saw God talk to them. He was revealing himself to them. And so, likewise, could we say we haven't just heard something We've seen something. We've seen the glory of the Lord in the word of the Lord that has come to us. And what a distinction. The Lord speaking to the people was a communication that came to them from where? From heaven, it says. This is not human words. This is not human-initiated communication. These are divine words, divine communication coming from God himself. He in his heavenly abode, we are on earth. He is above all and has made all. He sees everything and knows everything. He is the creator and we are the creature. And yet, he condescends and he gives us his word. Why is the word highlighted here? It's to hold the people accountable. It's the word which determines how God is worshipped. We cannot make up how God is to be worshipped. We cannot find some ingenious way to worship him. How we are to worship God is directed to us by his word. He tells us, he says how he is to be worshipped. He regulates his worship by his word. And an awful road to travel down is to think to ourselves, hmm, I wonder how we should worship the Lord this week. I'm thankful that I don't have to do that. (laughs) We don't have to do that because God has already told us how to worship him in his word. When it comes to worship, we don't have to think outside of the box. No, we have to look and do his word. He tells us what is pleasing to him. He will hold us accountable to how he is to be worshiped. The parameters of our worship is established by his word. And so that's where he begins with this priority of worship. Here he is saying, listen to my word. This is my word. All of this worship is established, is determined by his word. And so we ask ourselves, do we worship how God has instructed us, or did we merely do what felt good to us? What we liked, what was meaningful to us, what really moved our hearts. How often 
is the tragedy of what feels good to us, what really moves our hearts, is divorced from what God wants and what pleases His heart. When our hearts come into line with God's heart, then what is really meaningful in worship, then what really moves our hearts is what God wants, not what we want. Number two. The worship of God is exclusive to God alone. The worship of God is exclusive to God alone. (laughs) As parents, maybe sometimes we would say to our children, if I've told you once, I've told you a hundred times. Or, if I have to tell you one more time, Verse 23 sounds familiar, doesn't it? As we've been reading through the ten words, the ten commandments, verse 23 really is a repeating of the first and second word. Why does the Lord repeat himself? Why does the Lord have to repeat himself? Because he knows the Israelites' heart, their hearts, and he knows our hearts. (laughs) He knows we need to hear it again. And in this verse is this prohibition, you shall not make. Here are these two materials that are used to make these gods, two precious metals. The temptation would be to fashion images out of gold and out of silver. It's the same temptation in every human heart. To take something of worldly value and elevate it to the level of God. John Calvin says our hearts are idol factories. We can take anything and turn it into an idol. We can take good things and turn them into idols. How many times have our hearts set up those idols in our own lives, things that are just of worldly value? How many times could we take people that we love, a spouse, child, grandchildren, Make them the idols of our lives. Make job, our jobs, an idol. Make pleasure, comfort, ease an idol. Make worldly items, idols, cars, house, bank account. And maybe we would say, well, those things don't replace God. But do you even see what it says here? You shall not make gods of silver to be with me. Like you would bring in an idol into the very presence of God. Well, this doesn't replace God, 
but you don't mind setting it there right next to God. Who would bring an idol into God's holy presence? Who would profane God's pure presence with an unclean idol? Our worship is exclusive to the Lord and to the Lord alone. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. What is it that is so detestable to the human heart about this idea of exclusive worship to God and God alone. The Lord reveals it here. Do you see it? The second part of verse 23. Nor shall you make for yourselves. That's the problem. That's the problem with our hearts. That is the heart of idolatry. It's not the idol, really, that is important. It's not because you love the idol. You might say that you do. You might have made the idol out of stuff that you love or the world loves, but it's really not about the idol at the end of the day. It's not about your love for the idol. It's about you. It's about your love of self. You make idols for yourself. The greatest threat to our exclusive worship of God is the worship of self. It is the exaltation of self. It is the ascribing worth to self, to who I am, to my own self-importance. I ascribe to myself worth and value. Why would we ever do such a thing? Why would we ever want to worship ourselves? Is it ever because we believe that no one will love us better than we love ourselves. And so to ensure that we are loved, we will do everything to make sure that we are worshipped. What's the antidote to that? If we ever fear that no one will ever love us better than we love ourselves, what fixes it? It's when we come to understand and believe that no one will love us better than Jesus that we are really freed from our idol worship so that we can exclusively worship God. Jesus loves you better than anyone and his love is better than even the amount that you can show love to yourself. And his love never fails, his love never falters, his love never ends, his love never dies, it never goes away. Jesus' love is better than any love that you can give yourself. Do you know the love of Jesus? 
Do you need the love of Jesus this morning to help you overcome your own self-love that's blinded you, that keeps you from worshiping God? God does not give his glory to another, and neither should we. Isaiah 48, 11 says, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should, I, how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. If the Lord will not give his glory to another, why would we ever think that we should give his glory to another? And maybe we should hear the words of Psalm 115, 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. What is it that you have made for yourself this morning? What is it that you have exalted because it seems to be precious in your eyes or in the eyes of the world? What is more precious than any idol that you could ever make it's the presence of the Lord and the presence of the Lord will not be experienced and will never be experienced through idols it will be experienced though through offerings and sacrifices and that brings us to the last point The worship of God is focused on sacrifice. The worship of God is focused on sacrifice. This might seem strange to us. What in the world do verses 24, 25, and 26 have to do with us? What does altar building have to do with our lives today in 2022? Is that relevant? How do we apply these verses to our own lives? Are we supposed to build an altar? When was the last time you built an altar? Let's start here for a moment. What is an altar? Altars are designed as places for slaughtering a sacrifice. Generally speaking, that's what an altar is built for. You're going to kill something, you're going to slaughter something on the altar. And oftentimes, this is where people would call upon the name of the Lord as they made this sacrifice. And that's where then they would encounter Yahweh. That's where they would encounter the Lord. It's through the sacrifice that they would make to Him as they called upon His name. And notice this difference here as we come to these verses. Verse 23, it says, Nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold, but then what does it say in verse 24? An altar of earth you shall make for me. The idols you're making for yourselves, but this altar you make for me, says the Lord. pop quiz for us this morning. Fill in the blank. Noah built an altar. Is that what you were going to say? 
Noah built an altar. He did build an ark too, if you were thinking that. But he also built an altar and he built, in God's word, the first recorded altar specifically. Noah built an altar to the Lord. It's the first one that we have recorded. Abraham, next, in the book of Genesis, builds three altars. And the last altar, do you remember which one that one was? Abraham went up on Mount Moriah, there, right? He was going to build an altar. It's kind of like the climax of the altars that Abraham had built. He built his final altar on Mount Moriah where God told him to slaughter and sacrifice his own son. And as he raised the knife and was about to kill his own son, the son whom he loved, his only son, the son that he'd waited a hundred years to have, the Lord stopped him. The Lord provided a sacrifice, a ram caught in the thicket. Noah built an altar. Abraham built three altars. Isaac built an altar in Genesis 26, 25. Jacob built an altar in Genesis 35, 7. Moses built an altar in Exodus 17, 15. Why am I saying this? Why am I going through all of this? Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. Why would I take us through all of those? God is saying, this is the same worship that has been happening all along. This is not different worship. This is the worship of the patriarchs. This is the worship that their fathers had been a part of. So as they are commanded here to build an altar for the Lord, this isn't some new way to worship God. This is the way that they have been worshiping God, the way that they would have known to worship God all along. And what's interesting here is that when we take this idea of no idols and then there are to build an altar, that was completely foreign to pagan cultures. In pagan cultures, you had an idol and you had an altar. And you worshipped, sacrificing on the altar to the idol. But now the Israelites look distinct. They have an altar, but they have no idol. They have a God who is in the heavens. A God whom they cannot see lest they die. They have a God who is unlike any other man-made figment of their own imaginations. Look at what this altar is to be made of. It's to be made of earth. Again, the contrast between the idols of gold and silver, and now Israelites push some clumps of dirt together and make an altar. It was a worship that was simple, that anyone could do. It was not a worship that was based on wealth or sophistication. It was simply based on what anyone could have, just some dirt that you'd push together. What is it in that that impresses God? It's not the gold. It's not the silver. It's the humble state of your heart in worship. It's that you're humbling yourself before the Lord. 
It's a reminder that as they pushed that dirt together, that they were reminding themselves, I came from this dirt, and to this dirt I will return. What else do we see with these altars? Well, they are specific types of sacrifices, right? Sacrifice on these altars, burnt offerings. Burnt offerings specifically that were made for the atonement of sin. Burnt offerings that could be made, again, by anybody. These didn't have to be Levitical priests. But they were to make burnt offerings for the atonement of their sins. They were to be saying to the Lord, we are sinners. We recognize our sin. And so here we are bringing these burnt offerings before you because we are sinners. It was saying, we deserved what was happening to this animal that we're laying upon the altar. We deserve to be killed. We deserve to die. It was our blood that should have been shed for our own sin. But this animal is taking our place. And it was peace offerings or fellowship offerings. And it appears that these peace offerings were even to be made on top of the burnt offerings. And what did these peace offerings demonstrate? That these people now had fellowship with God. They now had peace with God. That there was this communion between the worshiper and God himself. And how appropriate that this is the way it happens. Burnt offerings for your sin and then fellowship with God. That's the way that it works. Sacrifice for your sin and then oneness with God. They were to bring their sheep and their oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. So these altars was not just one specific location. There would be that eventually with the tabernacle and the temple. But here, it's wherever you are, you can make these altars. Wherever I cause my name to be remembered, says the Lord, there, what? I will come to you. I will be with you. You will know my presence and what? The outpouring of my blessing will be upon you. You will be blessed for these sacrifices that you are making and these altars that you are building. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. So, one way they could make this is out of stones, but they couldn't hewn the stones, they couldn't fashion the stones with tools. And what's interesting here, look at that word. If you wield your tool very literally, it's sword. Don't take your sword to build this altar. Why not? Why couldn't the Israelites take their sword? Because swords had this idea of ending or shortening life. Don't take a tool or an instrument or a sword that's meant to end life. Why? Because this is a place to give life. This is a place to lengthen one's days. And, and, I believe tools were not to be used on the altars because it was ultimately not about the accomplishment of men. That men could say, 
Look at this great altar that I have built. Look at what I have fashioned with my tools. It was not about what man had built. It was not about man boasting and how great he was. Rather, it was to be about what God had done. It was to focus on the greatness and the glory of God. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And what else? Last verse. You shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Verse 26 is meant to remind us of the first gracious act of God where he covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, once they sinned and once they fell, they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. And God, in his great love and mercy and grace, he covered them with animal skins. He covered their their nakedness. He covered their shame so that it would no longer be exposed. And the very same thing was to be happening with this altar. It was not an altar that was to uncover their shame, it was an altar that was meant to cover their shame. So what does it have to do with us? Should we go out back and build an altar? Have we ever, even in one sense, built altars in our own hearts. We pushed some things together. We said, we're going to worship something in our own hearts. We think we maybe need an altar to worship upon. Sometimes people call this platform or maybe that table, they call it the altar Think about people getting married at the altar. I'll be honest. This is not an altar. Why not? Because there is only one final altar. And that one final altar is the altar of the cross. That is where Jesus Christ was sacrificed. That's where the perfect Lamb of God was slaughtered. That is where all of our sin and all of our shame was placed upon Him so that He might die in our place. It was there at that altar where Our shame was covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. It was there where now we can say it's no longer anything that we do. We cannot boast in anything that we have made, no altar that we have made, no sacrifice that we have made. It's all about what Christ has done in sacrificing himself to save us from our sins. It's he who is the final and full burnt offering to make atonement for us. It is he who is the final 
incremental and full peace offering to bring us into fellowship with God. If there is an altar that you need to go to this morning, it is the altar of the cross and the cross alone. That is the only altar. There is no other altar to make. There is no other altar to build. There is no other altar to come to. Is that the altar that you've come to? Is that the altar that you need to come to this morning? You recognize your sin. You've offended God with the way that you've lived your life. Come to the cross of Jesus. Come to this place where you will then know finally the full and true worship of the living God. Come to this altar, the only altar that we need, and partake of Jesus. He will satisfy your soul. He will save you. His sacrifice on the cross is the altar of his priestly agency. He speaks the word of God from the altar and it's his final sacrifice that saves us. And how do we respond? How do we respond? We respond by sacrificing ourselves. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That word spiritual has behind it this idea of it is your reasonable worship or it's your logical worship. Because of what Christ has done. Because of who he is because of the great love that was poured out on the cross, because of the blood that was shed to cleanse you from all of your sin, the only right and true and good response that makes sense in anyone's life is to present yourself as a living sacrifice. May we pray that we would be those sacrifices all of our days. Jesus, we ask you to help us be living sacrifices as we behold your sacrifice this morning. The final altar, the only one that we can come to, the only one who saves, the only one who forgives, the only one who covers our nakedness and shame. Father, if there's someone here this morning who thinks it's about what they do to get to God, if there's anyone here this morning who's trying to clean themselves up to make their own way to God. I pray that this morning that they would see the only way is through Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
that they would turn from their sin and put their faith in Him. That they would come to the cross. They would stop building their own altars or their own idols. Father, I pray that You would forgive us, Your children, this morning if we have made idols or altars. If we've given Your glory to another, Pray that you would renew our hearts, transform our minds, renew our minds, that we might vice that you want us to be. Continue to worship you with all that we are for all of our days, we pray in Jesus' name.